We are continuing our series of Old Testament survey. We are flying over each book and trying to get some orientation to what the books teach that will help us improve our reading and have more beneficial interaction with these books. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you have spoken in the scriptures. You've spoken most fully in Christ, but uh, not in an isolated way, but in context of the story that you were telling and the story that you've told from creation. And we long to know you according to your revelation. We long to better know Christ and the work that he came to do and the promises he came to fulfill and the needs that he came to meet. And so we pray to that end that you would grant us a deeper understanding of the Old Testament, uh, that we would see the things that you've revealed with greater clarity, and that we would desire and be equipped to engage with these texts on our own and as a church body with greater profit. Uh, We know that your scriptures are are like gold uh, to those who mine them, and that's like drippings of the honeycomb to those uh, who uh, spend time in the word and engaging your scriptures and we want to experience those things and we want to know you so we pray to that end that you'd bless our time bless our learning and bless my teaching this morning in jesus name amen so in week one introducing the series i mentioned that there are many places where the new testament commends the old testament to christian audiences by the way has everyone gotten uh the handout that's in the back on your way in Uh, Just to let you know in case anyone didn't know about that. You all look familiar at this point. So, you know, the drill. But um, one of the places where the New Testament commends the Old Testament for our continued reading and belief and formation is in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. And in this context, Paul is recounting some events, especially some cautionary tales about Israel. And he notes this. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is how he refers to his contemporary audience, the church, the new covenant community, as those on whom the end of the ages has come. He said this was written for us, for our instruction. Now, without looking at 1 Corinthians 10, there's a little quiz Does anyone know what Old Testament book he's referring to here? The events that he's referring to. What Old Testament book are they written in? This is a hard one. I don't necessarily expect anyone to know this off the top of their head. How about a hint? He says in the two verses prior, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, I have a hand. What book might this be from? Leviticus? Leviticus? Which, the, the, the serpents? You're close. It's in one of the books we're doing today. It's Numbers. The serpents are in Numbers, yeah. So, uh, oh. <laughs> so um, there, yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm going to further confuse things, blurring it, the two books in our minds by teaching them together. Um, We're going to look at two books today that we, if we're honest with ourselves, if we've tried to read through the Old Testament, we have struggled with these books. Leviticus and Numbers. Come on, let's be honest. We struggle with these books. And it's for that reason that I love Paul's commendation of Numbers to a Christian audience. He sees direct parallels between the experience of Israel in the wilderness and the situations of 
Christians in his day. And what he's saying is don't put Christ to the test by your grumbling just like they did. So, Christian reader who has despaired over reading Leviticus and Numbers, I come to you this morning with happy tidings. It is for books like this that we do Old Testament survey. Uh, Because a little bit of orientation to the structure and the theology of these books can have massive return on investment for us in terms of better equipping us to read these books profitably. These are the kinds of books where You know, Numbers is about Israel wandering in the wilderness. And there can be something kind of experiential for us in reading some of these books. We can feel like we're wandering in the wilderness in reading. But a little bit of signage and a little bit of a map can radically transform the experience of reading these books. So that's part of the intent of why we're doing this course, is to help you with the whole Old Testament, but especially these books that we may struggle with. So... Let's start talking about Leviticus. We're going to cover both of these books today. Regarding its composition, we're talking stuff like author, date, and purpose. Imagine a scenario, okay? You are planning a camping trip with a few friends. You are working through logistics like reservations, food, transportation, and gear. And you're all set to go, but the day before the trip, you get a phone call. And it's a phone call from the White House, Word of your camping trip has made its way to the president. I don't know how. But he wants to camp with you and your friends. He wants to join you on your trip. Now, once the initial shock has washed over you, your mind becomes crowded with all sorts of practical issues. What is security going to look like? Is our site adequate for security? What does the president like to eat? We were going to have hot dogs and breakfast cereal. Uh, He's going to need a comfortable tent. Where should we position his tent relative to ours? Everything has changed. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Can anyone tell us how Exodus ends? How does the book of Exodus end if you've read it? Yeah, Cindy. No, that's the end of um, Deuteronomy. Yeah. So how does Exodus end? Does anyone know? So what are some of the things that happened in Exodus? We have the Ten Commandments. We have instructions to build... Tabernacle. And then they go ahead and build the tabernacle. And does the book end with, and thus the, the last curtain was stitched and the tabernacle was finished? Is that the end of Exodus? It's the Lord coming in. Yes, it's the climactic end in chapter 40 is the Lord comes to dwell in the tabernacle. So, this is a sanctuary that God has told them to build so his glory could dwell with them. And it's the climactic end of Exodus that his presence, the cloud, comes to fill the tent. God is here. And what happens next? And the Lord called Moses. That is literally how Leviticus begins. There is no break to the action. It's a new book. But there's no break to the action. So I'm going to back up and remind you that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and those two we're covering today, and Deuteronomy, they're all written by Moses. They are a box set. They are meant to be a literary unity. And they were all written sometime during Israel's time in the wilderness between about 1446 B.C. and add 40 years to that, 1406 B.C. Because that's how B.C. works, right? The number gets smaller. So sometime during that period in the wilderness, 
all five of these books are written. And so just as Exodus ended with this exclamation mark, God is here. So then the whole book of Leviticus takes up the natural next question. So now what? And just like our presidential example, with God in the camp, everything changes. So let's talk about literary structure, um, how the book is set up. Most of Leviticus is legal instruction, but like all of the Pentateuch, we have legal instruction that's set within a larger framework of a narrative. So it's story with blocks of, of legal instruction within it. So um, the narrative context would be Exodus, like I just said, God comes to invade the new tabernacle and then he starts talking to Moses about what to do now that he's here. And then the action just picks up. There's a couple little narrative chunks in Leviticus, not a lot. And then the action just picks right up in Numbers after that. And we'll talk about the literary structure of Leviticus in three big sections. The first one is chapters 1 to 7. And this is what we might call instructions on various sacrifices. This is all about how Israel is to do its sacrifices, both for the people giving the offerings and for the priests, who we'll talk about in a moment. They mediate the offerings. So now that Israel knows how to worship, they need to get ready for it. And I just mentioned the priests. So chapters 8 to 10, the second section, is all about getting the priests ready for their job. How the priests are to be consecrated, set apart, and designated and prepared for their work. And then there's a little bit of narrative about how that is done. There's a ceremony to consecrate, to set apart some of Aaron and his family to be priests. And this episode in chapter 10 ends with disaster. In chapter 10, Israel learns that the worship of Yahweh is not jazz, it's orchestra. It is not improvisation, you follow the score. Because two of Aaron's sons offer what's called in 10 verse 1, unauthorized fire to the Lord, something he had not called them to do. And what happens? Anyone who's read it, this is one of the, this is the most exciting part of Leviticus. What, what happens? They are struck dead by fire from the Lord from the sky. And it's a miraculous fire that doesn't burn their clothes, just their bodies. It is, it is wild. Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing that happen? So finally, the third major section, the rest of the book, moves into various regulations about how to live and how to order all of life with the holy God in your midst. And within that, you have things like chapters 11 to 15 dealing with ritual cleanness, things like what kinds of food to eat, what to do about skin diseases, etc. Chapter 16 talks about the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment. That is a high point in Israel's year, in their calendar. Chapters 17 to 25 talk about other various facets of holiness in Israel's lives. And it's pretty miscellaneous, spanning from things like sexual purity to how they order their time, how they order their calendar. Things like um, what it takes to be for the priests. There's certain kinds of purity required of priests. Um, Chapter 26 promises blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for disobedience. And then chapter 7 deals with how to place value on gifts to the Lord. So think about, to maybe help us think about the movement of the book, imagine this kind of from above geographically. God's presence has landed like a bomb. You know, have you ever seen video from uh, a bomber dropping bombs? You can see the, the, the bombs falling like from the... The, the, the Bombay of the plane. God's presence has landed in the tabernacle like a bomb, in the, literally the center of the camp. 
And so now Israel's response to him radiates outward from that center, starting with what we do in the tabernacle. That's the beginning of the book. But then it radiates out into all the various far-reaching facets of life. Things like our food, things like sex, things like our calendar, things of that nature. So any questions or thoughts about just how the book is ordered, how it's structured? Yeah, Taylor. One clarification. Yes. So the books have always been received as five books. So it's not like, so that's a, so his question is, was it Moses's idea to give us five books or was it one? So say like all the first and seconds in the old Testament are not that way. Samuel King's Chronicles, each of those was given as one book, but the scroll could only handle so much text, so they had to break it into two scrolls. That's what we have first and second, Samuel King's and Chronicles. So you should always read those as one book. But the Pentateuch was always given as five books, but there is a, there's radical unity between them, and the action just keeps, keeps going. Um, so yeah, great question. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's talk about the theology of Leviticus. And we'll talk about four theological themes to draw out. One of them is the holiness of God. This is the first and most important. This is a foundational theme to all the others. And the the core idea of God's holiness. Who can help us just with some um, explanation of what God's holiness means? This is a religious word, so we don't really use this outside of Christianity. So it can be kind of hard to define, right? What does holiness mean? Yeah, Eric. Yes. Okay, different and morally perfect. Those are great aspects of what it means for God to be holy. Um, Perhaps I like the uh, the way of putting it maybe as the most central, central core is that it's God's devotion to himself. God's holiness is his devotion to himself. He is entirely (laughs) pro-God. That's eternal. That's even without any regard to creation. But when you add creation to the mix, that means that God is set apart, and that's what the, even verbally what the word holy means, set apart from everything else. Like Eric said, he's special. He's other. And since everything else has impurity to it, from relative to God's perspective, that means he's morally pure. He's other in that he is pure of what is not other. He's pure of what is not devoted to himself. And so when God draws near, this is what Leviticus is about. God has drawn near to a people in covenant. He he is setting them apart from all else. He's drawing them into the realm of otherness with him, away from the rest. That's the kind of core idea of why the covenant requires a book like Leviticus. They are to be wholly devoted to him just as he is wholly devoted to himself. And some books of the Bible are really helpful because they have like one verse that just beautifully summarizes the whole message of the book. They don't all have a verse like that. Leviticus does. If you want to know Leviticus in a verse, it's 1145. 1145. He's talking to, this is the midst of the food laws, but he says this. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of, the, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 
That's Leviticus in one verse. So you have covenant background. Look what I did redemptively in, in Exodus. I brought you out. I made you my own. That's covenant language. Therefore, this, this attribute of my own holiness is to be reflected in your life. You're holy. I've called you to be other with me. That's why I'm giving you all these commands, these rules. The second theological theme is purity. And this flows very naturally from God's holiness. Is that throughout Leviticus, God's holiness implies a certain conceptual structure for Israel's life. We could see it as tiers or levels of nearness to God. There's three, okay? The first is there are holy things. Holy things. Things that are especially devoted to the Lord's use and worship. These are things like the tabernacle, the priests, and the sacrifices. But then, secondly, there are some things that aren't holy per se, but they're clean. And this would really encompass most of the rest of life. This is your body, usually. This is your house, usually. Uh, The food you eat should be clean, and so on. These are not the most special things, but they're still um, clean in a sense that they're acceptable to the Lord. But third, sometimes things and people become unclean. There's that third tier outside of clean that's unclean. And Uh, Sin can make things unclean. Other aspects of fallenness that aren't necessarily sin can make things unclean as well. Um, And God requires certain rituals for restoring cleanness. When something has fallen outside that boundary from clean to unclean, there have to be certain rituals to move it back into clean, to restore its cleanness. Just as there are certain rituals required to move clean things into being holy things. Like I said, in in chapters 8 to 10, there's a process for consecrating the priests. The idea is they're being moved from clean to holy. They're being moved up. And all of these require sacrifices, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But much of Israel's burden in Leviticus is to maintain these categories out of devotion to the Lord. Only holy things. So I talked about a geography. It It is geographic. So only holy things belong in the tabernacle. And only clean things belong in the camp. So you'll see if someone's unclean, they're supposed to do what? In terms of location. Stay outside of the camp. They may have to go out of the camp and do a ritual cleansing and then wait a bit and they can come back in there clean. So it's actually very helpful to think in terms of like a target and to think like you're looking at their camp from above. And this is one of the great things about Leviticus is it trains us in this sort of sanctified geography, kind of a theological geography about nearness to God and these kind of tiers of nearness and farness from God. Um, The third theme is sacrifice. I just mentioned sacrifices as an important kind of um, lubricant, we could say, for moving back up from unclean to clean or from clean to holy. Uh, Maintenance of Israel's relationship with the holy God depends on various sacrifices. In the very beginning of the book, this is what he gives them. And there are five. They, They, in various ways, these five sacrifices either repair or maintain the covenant relationship with the Lord. So in chapter 1, we learn about an offering for sin that's called the whole burnt offering. Uh, So the the worshiper brings a suitable animal uh, to the altar where the priest is in front of the tabernacle, puts his hand on the animal's head, and in this way, the animal is identifying with the sin of the worshiper and then gives the animal to be burned whole on the altar. And this offering atones excuse me, atones for sin, um, which means it removes the offense and it removes God's wrathful punishment against the offense that this sin brought about. And so what this teaches Israel is 
that the solution for their sin must be not only death, but the death of another. God is, it's actually a gracious provision. You bring another creature to take this identification with you and it will die to restore your covenant bond with the Lord after your sin. Um, There are then two other varieties of atoning sacrifices that do the same thing with regard to sin. Um, One of them is called the sin offering, which is a little confusing because it's not the only one about sin. It's also called the purification offering. It's in chapter 4, 1 through 5, 13. And uh, the special case here is that the sin offering is for unintentional sin. So if you realize, oh, I sinned, I, I, there's a, an error of omission, or I, I, I didn't realize I was sinning against the Lord, it's still sin. And so there's a special kind of offering. There's a, a, another variation of an atoning sacrifice that's called the guilt offering. And you see that in chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. And that covers another special case of sin against the holy things of the Lord if you violated the the purity of a a holy thing, something related to his worship, the guilt offering is required. So all these atoning, the the burnt, sin, and guilt offerings, these fix the covenant bond. They repair the relationship after sin. But there's a couple of other kinds of sacrifices. You might think of sacrifices as purely atonement, but there's other kinds uh, that affect the relationship too. One of them is the grain offering in chapter 2, which is bringing a gift to the Lord. That's the idea of a grain offering. It's giving a gift to the Lord. And that's part of covenant too, is bringing offerings and gifts as a a way of honoring and worshiping Him. And likewise, in chapter 3, we have the peace or fellowship offering, and that is a way of communing with the Lord. What's cool about the peace offering is that the worshiper eats part of it, and the priest eats part of it. So everyone, it's like everyone gets to have a a party, a feast, and they also burn part of it for the Lord. It's It's like a communion meal with the Lord because that again is part of being in covenant with him to be in this this and we talked about covenant it's a, a relationship that God has established with with others uh, first of all we have to have our sins covered and dealt with but it's more than that it's being with God and fellowshipping with him and and giving him what we have as a means of adoring him this is all part of what it means to be in fellowship with God Uh, The climactic moment of sacrifice I mentioned earlier is the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. This is an annual um, holiday. Yeah, holiday is a good word for a holy day. It's very holy. Um, It's not individual like the other offerings. It's corporate. It's for the whole nation. And this is the day. You know, I gave you three tiers. We could almost say there's a fourth tier inside the tabernacle. What's the like pinpoint epicenter most holy place of all of Israel's life? The Holy of Holies. I mean, the, I mean, the name is like, it's the holiest place of all the holiest places. It's the, um, the ark, and then it has the mercy seat over it, and it's behind a curtain. And once a year, the high priest, who's the Holy of Holy people, goes into the Holy of Holy places and does the Holy of Holy thing, which is make atonement with blood for the sins of the whole nation on that, on, uh, in that place, on the mercy seat. And that's what the Day of Atonement is for. Um, and the fourth theological theme is priesthood. So if you read Leviticus and you see the intricate system that God is setting up, it's no surprise that there's a class of servants required to maintain it, to make sure everything's running smoothly. And that's what the priests are. They're mediators between God and man, and they're charged with um, guarding the holiness of the tabernacle and administering the offerings and teaching and making sure everyone is following these protocols, following the law God's given with regard to 
the holiness and purity of God's things. And uh, you see priests all throughout the Old Testament, but the concept is most fully developed in Leviticus. So that's another great contribution of Leviticus to our understanding of all of what the Bible's teaching is. It's the best place to understand what a priest is. So, any thoughts or questions about uh, any of these theological things? Yeah, Eric. You're right, you're right. The, the whole burnt offering was the only one that's not. So all the other ones, they eat part of it too. But I think the peace offering is most, there's a highest proportion of, of I think you only give a, a little part of it, and then everyone eats it. Yeah. So you're right. It's not the only one where the off, the peace offering is not the only one where the worshiper eats part of it. But that's more emphasized for the peace offering. Yeah, good comment there. Any other thoughts or questions? Well, a few thoughts uh, regarding application. Leviticus for Christians. Well, again, like we've done in the past, we want to sort of draw these as implications of the theological themes. And uh, the first one is Christ as priest and sacrifice. Um, All these regulations can seem pretty distant to us. They can seem pretty irrelevant to us until we understand what the whole Bible does with these things. And Hebrews is the go-to place for understanding how Christ relates to Leviticus. Um, Any reader who has slogged through the rivers of blood uh, in Leviticus can give a hearty amen to Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is one thing you realize as you read Leviticus, is there was a lot of death happening all over the place in Israel's life. And you read the narratives of the Old Testament, and you see it happening that way. Just animals being sacrificed right and left. But what Hebrews is saying there is that Christ has done this fully and finally. So um, in 9.24, Hebrews 9.24, he, he has done it as the priest. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. He's referring to the tabernacle, the temple. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Saying what the priests were doing was, was almost like it was. It was a shadow copy of the real deal, which is Jesus entering heaven on our behalf. So he's our priest. He's our mediator. And he's the one who's able to make us holy and uh, able to dwell with God in covenant, even though we're beset with sin. So how could sinners be in a covenant with a holy God? Jesus is the priest uh, to end all priests, literally, in, in the work he's done. But um, what is he? What what offering has he brought into the holy place to make that that atonement? He's the priest, right? So what did he bring with him to enter the the, the heavens? Well, it's not a blood or goat. But see, uh, this is where the, the metaphor gets very interesting. He is also the sacrifice. So he's the animal that died, so to speak, right, the, uh, whose blood is the atoning uh, blood. But he's also the priest that enters and makes the offering. So verses 25 and 26 of Hebrews continue. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in a, in a very interesting way, the Levitical offerings were foreshadowing and showing us a picture of Christ's atoning work in two different ways. He's both the, the animal that was sacrificed and he's a priest that makes atonement. The holy, uh, the holy person who mediates. 
And that is the final basis of our purity before God. And that is why we can, can, we can live continually forever in covenant with the Lord, even though we're sinners. Hallelujah. Amen. So when, when we understand Leviticus this way, it becomes very good news. Giving us a picture we would not, otherwise would not be able to appreciate what Christ has done for us. Uh, the second application theme is moral purity. And it's a pretty complex topic. We won't get into the weeds of how exactly the law of the Old Testament relates to Christians today. But to put it simply... On this side of the cross, the sacrifices have been brought to an end because Christ fulfills them in a way that brings them to an end. The ritual purity laws are over in the same way. We don't have the same food regulations. The New Testament is very clear about that. But the moral teaching of the law still stands. Um, So, fun fact. What does Jesus say is the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? What was that? Leviticus. Leviticus. We're going to say... It's a summary of the law that comes from Leviticus 19.18. The second most important... Yeah, from your summary. The second most important is love your neighbor as yourself. The first is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This comes from Leviticus. So Leviticus has moral instruction that Jesus affirms is permanent. And so while Christ is our all-sufficient sacrifice, God still calls us to take great care to pursue moral purity. Uh, Remember I said the key verse to Leviticus 11.45, you shall be holy for I am holy. That too gets taken up in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.15-16, Peter quotes this and just applies it straight up to the Christian audience. He's saying, remember God said you should be holy for I am holy. Well, I'm calling you to be holy in all your conduct. And he's not talking about what we eat. He's talking about um, being pure of sin and being filled with Christ-like virtues. So moral purity is still important. So as we read Leviticus, one thing that's very, again, illustrative for us is to take note of how pervasive Israel's pure, purity is to be. Leviticus is a stunning picture of how devotion to the Lord should take over our lives. It in, encompasses every part of life. And so it is with us as disciples of Christ, not in all the exact same ways, but to the exact same extent. To be holy as the Lord is holy, to be called His and brought into His covenant means everything in our lives belongs to the Lord. So Leviticus is very helpful for illustrating that. The third theme is the holiness of God, which was a theological theme. It's also an applicational theme. Has God changed since Leviticus? No. Okay, good. Some of you said it, all of you are thinking it. No, God has not changed since Leviticus. He is still a consuming fire that we saw in Leviticus 10 against uh, Nadab and Abihu. We should still tremble. It's a trembling not of servile fear as though Jesus' blood were not enough to cleanse us from sin because it is, hallelujah. But it is the trembling of a sober and joyful sense of his awesome holiness. The fear of the Lord is for Christians, is for New Testament believers. Um, Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29, tell believers, believers who have been made holy forever by the blood of Christ, this, let us offer to God an ex- uh, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's an astounding thing to tell people after saying Christ has once for all made you holy and made you pure in God's sight. And then he says, let's worship with fear. 
He's still the same God. So as we read Leviticus, simply ask yourself, what kind of God are we dealing with here? It's important for us to understand God this way and to deal with him and worship him this way. Any final thoughts about Leviticus before we move on to Numbers? Yeah, Eric. You know, you seem to make distinctions here in verse 4, like the wall aspect of the law, the other aspects of the law, and yet, if I wore a hybrid type of weave or something like that during that period, that would be considered a moral violation. Right. A violation of the law would be considered a moral Right. So, yeah. How do we parse that out? Yeah, that's a great question, and at least maybe a, a complex discussion to some degree, but I'll try to try to give you at least a thumbnail. So your question is, is it really true to the law to, to bifurcate, like to say that the ceremonial things have no more moral dimension to them? And it's not. But what I would say is this. Um, there are some commandments that God has given because they are... They're, um, unchanging moral realities based on his character. And uh, over time, you know, one thing this has been called is natural law. That there are certain things that are just true. They're absolutely true. They were true from day one of creation because of who God is. Adam would have been sinning if he had murdered Eve, even though God didn't say that in Genesis 1 or 2. But there are other commandments that we could call positive law, which is they're more situational commandments given the covenant relationship God has made with people. So he did say, don't eat from this tree. That's a positive law. There's nothing inherently permanently moral about eating from one tree or another. It was the conditions of the situation God had brought about. It becomes moral in the context of that covenant because it's a disobedience issue. But it's not in the same way. So when we look at the law, what's kind of tricky is that there is both of those mixed together in God's covenant instructions to Israel. It's only through the lens of the, the fuller teaching of the Bible that we can better kind of peel those apart and understand which of these things are true because simply of who God is and how he's ordered the universe. And which of these things are more positive law. They're simply uh, commandments that, that pertain to this covenant relationship. Yeah. So there's a lot more we could go into there, but that's somewhat helpful for thinking through. Because it's a complex issue. How, what does it mean that Christ has fulfilled the law? And yet, New Testament authors often dip into the law for their moral instruction. So, any other thoughts on Leviticus? Yeah, Smokey. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that's another... So there may be evidence that the Ten Commandments are, are, are natural law, kind of foundation of everything else. That's a, there's some debate there, but that's a, a good point, Smokey. Um, that, that's one, one way that a lot, of, a lot of folks have gone in terms of those are all reflected in some way in the new. Um, but anyway, there's more we could say about that. But 
Yeah, um, let's move on and talk about numbers. So the, the second book we're dealing with, the, the narrative continues right where Exodus left off. It's Sinai. Remember, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus. So numbers. We already know about the author and date. What about the purpose? Well, numbers can be a difficult book to pin down. Like, what's numbers about? <laughs> you know? If you've read it, it can be a little difficult to pin down. It has kind of a miscellaneous feel to it. Sometimes it can feel like a grab bag of stories, laws, uh, poems, prophecies. But there is a crucial purpose to discern in the midst of all that. There is an organizing principle. And that is that God, God's camp, Israel's camp, is not supposed to be stationary. It is a mobile army camp. And because... Uh, they're, God has not given them, sorry, God has not called them, I'll say, to stay forever in the desert. They're on their way somewhere else, right? Where are they headed? They're headed for the promised land. They're on their way somewhere, the land of Canaan. That was the plan all along. So Numbers is about the transition of Israel from Sinai to the plains of Moab, where the final verse, 3613, leaves us on the plains of Moab, poised to take the land. Simple, right? Just moving from Sinai to Moab. Easy, right? Sadly, it's a much more adventurous and turbulent transition than it should have been. And that's why we have the whole book of Numbers. So let's talk about the literary structure. Outlining numbers is tricky. Again, because there's sort of a miscellaneous feel to it. It can be hard to kind of know what the major sections are. But we'll go with these. I, I, was, I was compelled by these, this outline that was offered. Three big parts. The first is that chapters 1 to 10 cover the consecration of the first generation army. Consecration of the first generation army. And the key signal here is the census in chapter 1, which goes tribe by tribe and talks about who the major families are and how many are in that tribe. But it's not just like a census bureau count. Okay, There's, there's something else going on. Listen to verse 3 and tell me what kind of imagery you hear. From 20 years old and upward... All in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. What does that sound like to you? That's military. That's counting an army. That's not counting, you know, people like the Census Bureau going out and counting how many people live in the neighborhood. By the way, does anyone remember or does anyone know without looking roughly how many do they count? Like yep, it's about 600,000. Yes, very good, very good. So it's about 600,000. And then these are fighting age men. So people have estimated, wow, the whole nation has been like two or three million. That's hard to know exactly, but very large. So um, the rest of that section, first 10 chapters, is all about getting everyone ready to go. Everyone has to know their assignments. And then in the end, they roll out like an armored column. And there's this battle cry from Moses in 1035. He says, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. This language actually gets reflected in the Psalms. You'll see this, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. This kind of language, kind of look for it as you read the Psalms. This, this will echo through the, the Psalms. But um, the second section, which is the heart of the book, it goes from chapters 11 to 25, and it's all about the failure of that first generation army. The failure of the first generation army and it is a tragic bloodbath but it's not like they went out to war against another nation and they all got slaughtered that's not how it happens 
What happens is there are several episodes of a recurring cycle where the people sin against God, they rebel against Him, they complain, uh, ultimately they disbelieve Him, and God responds with an outbreak, some kind of outbreak of deadly wrath, and people die. And then He'll relent, by, uh, often by means of some kind of mediation. And so it goes. And the pinnacle of these sin judgment episodes is chapters 13 to 14. When Israel sends spies into Canaan, to scope out the promised land before their invasion. And not to be Captain Obvious, but this is, remember, the land that God has promised them. That's why it's the promised land. So it's really ugly when the spies come back and they give this doom and gloom report. They say in 1331, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. That's their verdict. We can't do it. And with two notable exceptions, who are the two good guy spies that don't fall into this. Caleb and Joshua, yeah. The spies predict doom. The people hear that they balk, they, they stumble, they don't go in, they rebel against the Lord and Moses. And here is God's devastating response. It's in 14 verses 22 to 29. And this is the heart of the book, I would argue, the heart of, of numbers. Um, can I have a reader actually to read, two readers for this. We're just going to read verses 22 and 23. That'll be reader one. And then another reader for verses 29 and 30. So there's a little bit of a, a break we'll skip over. Uh, Wilson, you got 22 and 23 of Numbers 14. Would anyone get verses 29 and 30? Volunteer. Okay, Greg. Right. We'll have Lori do it. Thanks. I saw your hand too. So, Wilson, you ready to go? Now the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times that have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of them who despise me shall see it. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward who have grumbled against me not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. He said, you're all going to die in the wilderness, and none of you are going to make it. And everyone we counted in chapter 1, except these two, is going to die, and you're not going to go in. That's, your, that's a consequence of your grumbling, your rebellion against me. So... Um, that's the second section. It's very cheerful. The, the third section, though, um, actually does end the book on a more hopeful note. So chapters 26 to 36 cover the consecration of the second generation army. And chapter 26 has a really key parallel. The census is repeated. There's another census. This is the second generation. And uh, the numbers are pretty close to the same. So there's this sense of kind of a replacement, right? Like we had this army of one size and then a number of unfortunate events occur and there's sin and there's death and then now though there's a new generation and there's another 600,000 the parents have died in the wilderness so now the children are poised to inherit the promises so that's basically how the story of numbers proceeds Uh, any thoughts or questions about just the layout of the book before we start talking about the theology of it yeah Lori in in verse 29 uh huh it says at the end of all the ones over 20 and upward who have grumbled against me is that saying then that all of you have grumbled against me if only Joshua and Caleb went in 
I think it is because in so she's saying, yeah, I'm saying none of those of you who grumble against me will enter. Does that mean everyone, or is it the set of those who grumble? I think it's all because of what he said earlier in 22. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did, um, etc. 23 shall see the land that I swore. So that sounds like he says everybody who's been along this ride, who's seen what you've seen, you're all. So I think that would would explain for us what he means by, and essentially what he's saying in 29 and 30 is all of you have grumbled. It's not just a set of them who have grumbled; they'll die. He's saying you've all seen my signs. You've all seen. Um, these things, none of you will see the land. That's a good question. Any other thoughts about numbers? How it's laid out? All right, let's talk a little bit about theology. I'll draw out a few major themes. The first uh, will be no surprise by now, sin and judgment. This is a basic and prominent feature. A few examples, again, um, uh, from this middle section. In chapter 11, the people complain about their misfortunes and fire comes from the Lord and it burns some people in the outskirts of the camp. Chapter 12, so the next chapter, Moses' siblings complain against him for a number of reasons, Aaron, uh, Miriam and Aaron, yeah, and God strikes uh, them with skin disease, at least Miriam. Uh, in chapter 16, Korah, a man named Korah, leads a band of rebels to usurp Moses. They end up being swallowed by the earth. Guys, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't grow. There's a, this, is, this is a bad history, a bad track record that, that Numbers is pointing for us. The people see that happen. They protest. And again, wrath from God breaks out and kills many of them. Over and over, the people rebel, the people sin, the Lord judges the people, and bodies go down in the desert. It is a very sad tale. And that's why Numbers takes a whole generation and not just a quick trip from Sinai to Canaan. Uh, The second theological theme is unbelief. Uh, Deuteronomy, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, looking back at Numbers... Um, so Deuteronomy, just to give a preview for next week, Deuteronomy is they're at the plains of Moab, they're all set to get in, and God says, okay, this whole new generation, we've got to kind of refresh them on the law, as well as kind of in a way that's more applied to the land that they're going to inhabit. So that's what Deuteronomy, Deutero means second, it's the second law. It's the second giving of the law for a new generation that's framed in a way that's more appropriate to the land. And... Deuteronomy begins with some narrative, and part of what is happening is Moses is preaching to Israel about their roots. He's like, remember where we're coming from, y'all. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 1, 31 and 32. You have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that, that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of his word, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. That's his summary over what happened, basically all the way from Exodus through Numbers. The Lord carried you, and he says, remember in Exodus 19, like, in, like on eagle's wings, the Lord is the one carrying you. He's providing for your needs. He's the one graciously defending you. But what did you do? You just didn't believe his word. That's a summary of Numbers. That's why so many people died. They didn't believe his word. All the rebellion and grumbling stems from this root of unbelief. Even... And often, if you read Numbers, a lot of their complaints and their insurrection attempts are against Moses. But Paul, expre- uh, uh, Paul, sorry, well, <laughs> Moses 
It's interesting. The man against whom many of their, uh, their accusations and, and opposition is pointed, he interprets it as unbelief against the Lord. Moses is never the issue. He's just the mediator. It is always a thinly veiled attempt to usurp the Lord himself. It's complaining against God. One other sad note about Moses in Numbers is even he does not escape the tentacles of this sin of unbelief. So in, in chapter 20, verses 10 to 13, God tells him to strike a rock and water will come out miraculously. This had happened earlier. It all went great. But this time Moses, probably angry, he strikes it twice. And this is how God interprets that action. Again, it's unbelief. So in 20, verse 12 of Numbers, because you, Moses, did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So he's saying, because of your unbelief, you did this thing out of unbelief. Therefore, you too, like the rest of that first generation, you won't make it into the land. That's why, as I think Cindy mentioned earlier, Moses dies at the end of the Pentateuch. He doesn't make it in. Third is The third theme is the faithfulness of God. So Numbers is one of the bleaker books of the Old Testament, uh, but it has a silver lining of hope. And that hope is that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And I'm going to point to two indicators of that faithfulness. The first one is a curious episode with the prophet Balaam in chapters 22 to 24. To give you the the, the TLDR or thumbnail version, Balaam is a foreign prophet who is hired by an opposing king to curse Israel. He's a prophet for hire. He says, come on in, curse him. I'll pay you all. I'll reward you richly. But try as he may, the Lord does not allow him to curse the people. Every time he opens his mouth to try, nothing but blessings spill out of his mouth. And there's these amazing prophetic passages where Balaam, despite himself, is blessing God's people. And this, um, this does two things. First of all, it enrages the king. And I'm sure Balaam's Yelp rating suffered from this. Uh, but also, it confirms the Lord's promise to Abraham back in the day. Way back when he first approached Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And even there's a, there's a part of Balaam's, one of his speeches where he cites that. He's saying, like, God's blessed you and made you a blessing. Um, so God has created this like blessing force field over Israel and they can't be cursed, at least from outside. Uh, God's hand of protection remains over them amidst even all their sin. The only thing that can bring them down is their sin from inside. And sadly, that is what continually brings them down. Uh, the second indicator of God's faithfulness is that the second generation actually has a much better go than the first So I I said 26 to 36 is that second generation. Things actually get a lot better from there. Um, No one dies. There's no more rebellion. There's no more uh, wrath breaking out from heaven. There's even some victories. Uh, There's some battles that they win. Some people harass them and God gives them victory. And, And a lot of that section is just the people once again kind of preparing and mobilizing to take the land that the Lord will give them. So as faithfulness is, the second generation gets a new start. So any thoughts or questions about some of these these theological themes from Numbers? Yeah, Tyler. When we look at uh, Exodus, Numbers, see all this unbelief and just like repeated offenses in Israel Mm -hmm. about providing and then not believing Mm -hmm. and and grumbling. Uh, Is part of 
part of the issue there that there their hearts that we are in a different spot now we, we in the new covenant we have hearts new hearts mm-hmm. God has given us dwelling in us mm-hmm. flesh rather than mm-hmm. so is there some connection there that, that we ought to make of you know even as we can like talk about how easy it is for us to grumble under much easier circumstances is there some distinction there too of, mm-hmm. of them not having transformed first. Yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. So your question is, uh, is one key distinction between our situation and theirs that we have the new covenant, we have the law written on our hearts, we have the spirit indwelling us, and, and so on. Yes, that's absolutely. I would say one of the main, in, in the context of the whole Bible, one of the main takeaways from all of Israel's story, especially in, in, in these kinds of events, is look what kind of heart natural man has. You put natural man in this externally amazing spiritual situation, and you say, ready, set, go, and what does he do? It's just failure. It's just immediate, constant, repeated failure. Um, the Part of what God's answer to that in Christ will be in the new covenant, against that backdrop, is I'm going to change you inside. Um, and so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he says, you're in a similar situation. I mean, he draws parallels. You're, in a lot of ways, you're in the same spiritual situation as that generation. Uh, but what I, but I, what I would say, too, is you're in the same external situation with new internal equipment. That's one of the key distinctions. Um, I'm trying to find, because in Hebrews 8, this is a, I think this is the very point the author makes. Um, when he says, um, he's, he's citing Jeremiah 31 in, in Hebrews 8 9. He says, The day is coming when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And in verse 9, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's Exodus. I made this covenant. I took them by the hand. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Um, and, and then he says, now I'll, he goes on and says, a covenant I'll make, I'll put the law in your hearts. So he, it's, it's explicitly against the backdrop of how did it go last time I made a covenant with the people? It was real bad. So he says that the, the key new thing here is that you'll get a new heart. Yeah, so it's a great question. The answer is yes. <laughs> David, yeah. The, the first generation of this always came out of Egypt, you think we'll see in heaven, because not making it to the promised land Physically, is that this? I mean, even Moses didn't make it. Yeah. So I presume he's going to haul. Yeah, he's there. <laughs> um, I mean, but, but like Korah's rebellion. Yeah. You got like who? Like what percentage do you think are going to be in heaven versus like what was looking forward to God's yeah. redemption versus like <laughs> the perfection needed to make it to the physical? Yeah. So that yeah. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No. Yeah. Good question. And you just make the good illustration, David. Uh, I mean, the good maybe maybe a. Uh, um, premise you're arguing, which is true, is Old Testament believers are saved. So they're, they're saved by Christ the same way we are. They're saved through faith the same way we are, like Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Those people are littered throughout the Old Testament. We'll meet many of them in the new creation. Um, how many of these people were in that? Well, there were some. Hard to know how many. What's interesting is that what's happening physically in Israel is, is a type in so many ways, 
the Bible, what the Bible does with this is it makes it a type of what's happening with us spiritually. So, you know, for them, moving into the promised land has a lot of parallels with us moving into heaven. Um, but it's not the exact same, right? So you're saying, well, there's also a spiritual dimension with them. And, and some of them who died in, that, in the wilderness probably did believe. Um, like Moses, right? he's a good example. We know Moses believed and yet he sinned and he was punished in, in a physical way in the wilderness. So yeah, that's a good thing to remember. There are Old Testament saints throughout. It's not like keeping the, the law, keeping the covenant was ever the means. It, it, nobody's going to be in heaven because they kept the law. They kept God's commandments. Everyone's going to get in the same way because of Christ alone through faith alone. Yeah. Which is another reason why Paul, I think, can draw the parallel. Because Christians can sin in such a way that we can be disciplined and face temporal consequences. But it doesn't mean that we're outside of grace, that we're going to um, go to hell. But we may, we may suffer temporal consequences in this life for our sin. Yeah, Patty. Along those lines, I want to give a shout out to Moses. I think that the worst job did a great job of it and personally have a challenging time sometimes with yeah. bam, God's judgment on that little second half. Mm. <laughs> but on the flip side, I, the takeaway is God's holy. Yeah. Watch it, Patty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be careful. I'm not that I'm looking over my shoulder. Yeah. But just take it seriously. Yeah. Because look at what happened to dear Moses. Yeah. No, that's a, uh, just a great point. That And there's so many ways. Moses is admirable. He's very selfless. He's the meekest man who ever lived. He's He wrote that about... No, someone else may have written that, but it's in numbers. Um, <laughs> but he... Um, he constantly, in these episodes, he's often going to the Lord interceding. And God's like, forget these people. I'm going to make you a new nation. You'll be the new Abraham. How do you like that, Moses? And Moses is like, no, no, don't do that. Because that would make you look bad, essentially, not keeping your promises. So he is an, an amazing character. Um, but yeah, there, it seems like a small thing that kept him out to us. And in those things, as we read it with the Bible, we don't want to um, rush past those. But what you're doing in your own heart, I really appreciate and want to commend, is wrestling and going, that seems wrong to me. Now, we don't, we don't want to say God's word is wrong. Of course, it's right. If it ever seems wrong, though, that's a helpful place to stop and ask myself, why does it seem wrong to me? What does that say about me? Um, And that's where God's word is going to do its work, right? Not the things that we read and go, okay, yeah, of course. But the things we go, what? Why would that happen? Why would he say or do that? That's where God has to work on us. And so there may be things about God that we're overlooking or we make God too much like us very, very easily. So very, very good word there. Um. Let's go on and talk about it. This is good already. We're talking, we're, we're uh, greasing the wheels, talking about application. A few applicational uh, tips as we read numbers. I'll draw out two of them. The first is our need for the cross. Uh, and this is actually an, an, uh, something that the Bible itself does. So in John 3.14, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he refers back to one of the judgment scenes of numbers, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And what happened there is that the people sinned yet again. They were, and God's method of, dis, of judgment this time, uh, you've got to hand it to God for creativity. There's so many, this time it's snakes that come out 
and bite people and they die. And what, what's this, the solution he gives? Moses, put a bronze serpent on a pole and everyone who looks up at the pole will be healed. It's kind of a weird episode. But Jesus looks back and says, just like the bronze serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, as he's referring to, so that whoever looks to him will, will live. So the bronze serpent, and, and I think we could extend the logic of that and say, in, in a lot of ways, all these episodes of sin and judgment throughout Numbers are showing us everyone under God's judgment faces unimaginable wrath. The wrestling that Patty talked about, we have to wrestle with this is a holy God. This is what it looks like to sin against him. But he has lifted his son up on the cross so that all who look to him are saved. And Numbers itself provides us with this beautiful picture that helps us see our need of the cross and the provision God has made. So as we read, put yourself among Israel's number and identify with them and think about, we're just like them. We're just like them in the sense of our proneness to sin, in the sense of our need of God. Notwithstanding Tyler's good point about the new covenant. God has given us better equipment than they had. The second application point to draw out is a warning against rebellious unbelief. And this brings us full circle to where we started, right? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. The danger of putting Christ to the test. It's interesting, he said they don't put Christ to the test like they did. So the second person of the Trinity has has never been absent from what God's doing. Um, But that danger of putting Christ to the test was not confined to the Old Covenant. And the danger of grumbling is not confined to the past. Uh, so, again, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13, if you want to just read on your own, to, it develops this comparison. That spiritually, I almost wrote, we're in the same shoes as Israel, but because of Tyler's good point, I said, we're in very similar shoes as Israel. Externally, right, in terms of our relationship, covenant with the Lord, but the, the difference is he's given us a new heart. That, that does make a massive difference. But we face the same spiritual dangers as they do. Now, no one saved in Christ will ever be lost. He said in John 20, uh, 10.28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's a good shepherd. So no one can be lost. We've got we to be very clear about that. But that preservation does take place through the means of our trembling before God and keeping hearts soft before him. So we don't, we don't, you know, some people say once saved, always saved. There's truth in that. It's not the best expression of the doctrine of eternal security or, or um, perseverance of the saints. Because it sounds like you just do this transactional thing. I got saved, and then um, there's nothing in terms of means required to, to preserve you in the faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. It, it teaches, on the one hand, everyone saved will stay saved no matter what. But it also teaches they will stay saved by means of taking God's warnings with a soft heart, heeding God's warnings. And so much of the book of Hebrews is just doing this exact thing. Um, the warning against hardening and, and unbelief is no idle threat for Christians. Hebrews twelve twenty five, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? So he's making a lesser to greater argument, saying you have better revelation. I think that's kind of the idea. You have a, a fuller revelation and a better covenant. So don't fall into the same trap like we have we have even less excuse to fall into the same sins uh, and again mu- much of hebrews is an extended warning to jewish christians who are tempted to go back to the old ways don't be like the wilderness generation in numbers be like the patriarchs of genesis who kept the faith in god's invisible promises they sinned too right but they didn't they didn't uh 
fall into that rebellious hard heart of unbelief that we're warned against. Any other thoughts on application uh, advice from the book of Numbers? No? All right, well, in conclusion, read Leviticus, read Numbers. <laughs> Benefit from them. And just like any other book, one thing we just say over, over as a highlight over the whole series is the more you read the Bible, the more familiar it becomes and the better you, the more you get from it. It's cyclical. You may read these things the first, second, third time, and it's like, it's kind of strange. But the more you start to discern the structure, the more you start to see the theological themes, and hopefully this course is sort of fast-tracking you (laughs) in some of these ways. But you'll just more and more better be able to understand the parts. And not only understand, but see the spiritual significance of the parts, how they show us God, how they show us the salvation he's worked for us in Christ. And uh, I think it's amazing. Back to 1 Corinthians 10.11, he says, They were written for us on whom the end of the ages has come. They, were, they happened for Israel, but they were written maybe more so for us. That is how for us the Old Testament is. So uh, in, in future weeks, I meant to do it today, but I didn't. Uh, I want to bring up some little books to commend to you. They'll maybe help with that further kind of orienting you to the Old Testament. So um, apologies. Just read, read the Old Testament. If you want to talk to me before uh, I do that, I'm glad to give you recommendations. But... Uh, We'll go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we exalt your mercy. We tremble at your, uh, your holiness. And just like Patty said, that we wrestle with understanding how unlike us you are. We so easily make you like us. We make sin light. We make it inconsequential. We rationalize it. Um, we, we relativize. We look around and we compare and think that a certain kind of sin isn't so bad after all. And your word levels us. Your word totally breaks, uh, breaks apart these, these constructs that we make and reminds us that you are the Holy One. There's no one like you. And yet you've made a way of mercy. You've made provision for us in Christ. You've, you've lifted up the Son of Man so that everyone who looks to him is saved. And we exalt your mercy in Christ. And we pray that we would be a people who are confident, even as we grow in trembling at your holiness, that we would grow in our confidence in Christ as our high priest and the sufficiency that, that his sacrifice worked for our salvation. Help us to all read and love these books and uh, use them to shape us in the likeness of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.